Hello, everyone. This is Volts for December 28th, 2022. Reflecting on the work of the soon-to-retire House Climate Committee. I'm your host, David Roberts. In 2019, in the wake of Democrats' congressional victories, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced that she would be reforming the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis, which had been disbanded by Republicans in the previous session. She appointed Florida Representative Kathy Castor as chair. At the time, the decision caused considerable controversy in the climate community. Climate activists were pushing for a more ambitious committee with the power to write a full Green New Deal legislative package. Instead, the committee was to be an advisory body only, meant to do research and develop policy suggestions. History is littered with congressional committees that busily produce reports and white papers that no one reads, but the Climate Committee proved much more potent than that. Castor set about gathering testimony from hundreds of witnesses, scientists, policy wonks, and average citizens alike, and putting her expert staff to work, translating their testimony into policy recommendations. But the recommendations did not simply decorate reports. The Democrats on the committee, and the Democrats educated by the committee's work, took those recommendations back to their own committees, where they found their way into a wide variety of bills. The Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, the CHIPS Act, and the Inflation Reduction Act all contained numerous policies that originated in the Climate Committee. Altogether, hundreds of the recommendations made by the committee found their way into law, a crazy high success rate for a committee with no real power. As the committee prepares to sunset, of course, Republicans are disbanding it again, it has put out a final report summarizing all its achievements and pointing to the work that remains to be done. I called Representative Castor to get her thoughts on the committee's work, the achievements she is most proud of, and what progress she thinks can be made in the next two years. All right, then, with no further ado, uh, Representative Kathy Castor, welcome to Volts. Thank you so much for coming. Oh, I'm delighted to be here, David. Thank you. So just to start off, I'm assuming that the coming Republican majority is going to shut down the committee. Has this been um, explicitly stated yet, or is this just, are we all assuming? Is that a valid assumption? Yeah, the ranking member, Garrett Graves of Louisiana, did uh, kind of spill the beans. The problem is that on the Republican side, the speaker-to-be, Kevin McCarthy, does not quite have the votes yet. So that leaves everything in limbo getting organized for the new year. But it's they've made it plain uh, that the climate crisis is not a priority for them, and, and therefore the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis will not exist in the next Congress. So then it's been wrapped up. It's been uh, a whirlwind <laughs> three years, I guess, since you were uh, uh, placed in charge of this committee. Have you had a chance to kind of pause and, and step back and, and think about it all? Or are you still kind of in a sprint till the end of the term? It has been a sprint right till the end, uh, especially since the uh, large appropriations package and the defense bill right. were, were not completed uh, due to really foot dragging of the, the U.S. Senate. Uh, we have so much more left to do. I mean, we're, we are thrilled uh, that this was the most important Congress when it comes to clean energy and climate action and and building more resilient, safer communities across the country. I mean, it, this was the Congress, the one that that people inside and outside have been pressing for for decades, frankly. But there's still so much more left to do. We're living in a climate emergency, and the world's top scientists tell us it is just urgent that we reduce climate pollution across the board. And now we have the tool. We passed a number of the tools, but implementation will be key. And that's what we're looking ahead toward. I wanted to ask you, looking back on it, you know, if you can uh, cast your mind 
back to 2019 when you became chair and you had a majority in the House, but very narrow split Senate. You know, looking back, were you surprised by the productivity of this Congress? Like, how did it how did it perform relative to your expectations from back in 2019? Gosh, it was yes. I think the the fact that we were able to accomplish so much when the United States Senate was divided fifty fifty truly exceeded our expectations. But we really didn't have a choice. If it, we just couldn't, policy could not wait any longer. While so many private actors, the private sector, clean energy entrepreneurs, some utilities. Uh, some states and local communities are going gangbusters. They're, the federal government and the Congress had not responded. So the stars finally aligned when we kind of knitted together pieces of the climate movement across the country, across the economy, and had the plan ready when President Biden uh, was elected. But a 50-50 Senate, that was a roadblock. But looking back now, it's pretty impressive, the bipartisan bills that we were able to pass into law. Yeah, I've, I, you know, my my expectations are, are so low naturally that I've, I was quite pleasantly surprised. So let's talk about a little bit about what I think is one of the most striking features of this last few years, which has been, you know, a crazy time. But you know, I wrote a piece back in, I think it was 2019 or 2020, about, you know, the climate movement kind of splintered apart after Waxman-Markey back in 2008, 2009, and was kind of just fractured and drifting up through, I would say, probably like 2018. And then, of right. course, you know, I've, I've been writing about these processes whereby groups are talking to one another, and there's been just this intensive policy um, discussion and activity and the left seemed to sort of pull together around a policy vision, which I sort of characterized as standards, investments, and justice, SIJ. I tried to get SIJ to catch on, but, but it never quite did. Um, but then your committee comes along. You consult with you know hundreds of people. You get testimony from hundreds of people. And that's kind of that shared vision is more or less what you came around to – and for all the chaos of the ensuing years and all the sort of ups and downs and roller coaster of it, there was remarkably little, I thought, conflict within the Democratic Party or within the left about policy specifics. There seemed to be a weird sort of policy consensus that kind of held firm. Did that strike you too? I mean, especially relative to like 2008, 2009, when, you know, whether you supported cap and trade or not was this you know, this absolute marker of your purity or your intentions and all this, you know, all the very vicious policy fights back then, I thought there was a strange amount of consensus around policy this time around. Did you find that as well? I'm glad that we made it look easy because it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't. But, and it really started with Speaker Pelosi's vision, you know, coming back uh, and tackling the, the climate crisis. There's nothing like having a professional committee staff of experts. Uh, some of the other committee chairs in the Congress, you know, they protect their turf, their mm -hmm. jurisdiction, but she understood that solutions to the climate crisis cut across all jurisdictions and they needed to be knitted together. So having Anna Unruh-Cohen serve as our staff director, a brilliant, knowledgeable uh, scientist, but policy guru, and then Allison Cassidy is our, our deputy who had served under Chairman Waxman, uh, went through EPA after a report and, and now is helping Podesta in the White House uh, get all of these clean energy and resiliency policies done. Fatima Maud, great on transmission in the power sector. Samantha Medlock, who understood that the climate, we have to prepare and adapt. Uh, so another professional. So there's nothing like having a team that is in place, ready to listen. Most of them veterans of the Waxman-Markey fight. So, you know, had seen how things could go, I think, and went in determined to make them go differently this time. You're absolutely right. And what, what I learned watching uh, Speaker Pelosi and 
just kind of growing up as a policy nerd myself, <laughs> is that from the very get-go, you have to listen. Uh, you have to listen and learn. And that's what we set out to do right off the bat. Listen to farmers who were hungry for climate solutions because they their crops and livestock being impacted. Scientists, folks in the clean tech sector, the innovators, we needed to understand what the modern solutions were. The environmental justice community uh, who have felt so left out of discussions on solutions on mm-hmm. clean energy and technology for many years. And we, we set out to do that, held a number of those listening sessions, but put out a request for information asking for the climate solutions across the country. And at that time, we also... Hal Harvey and the folks at Energy Innovation gave us a kind of set the table tutorial to really point us in the direction of what gets the biggest bang for the buck when we're talking about reducing climate pollution and clean energy. And then before COVID came down, trying to go out across the country to listen, one of the first trips was to coastal South Carolina to look at the impacts of of climate on And coming from the state of Florida, I understand very well the impacts on climate on a tourism economy and your your economic well-being. But then out to Colorado, to the National Renewable Energy Lab, where we we really tried to bring our Republican colleagues along with us because durable policy oftentimes has to be bipartisan. And I think looking back on the bipartisan infrastructure law, the CHIPS Act, everything we've done in, in the defense bills, through the appropriations, they were bipartisan and they will be more durable. Uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, not as bipartisan, but boy, <laughs> to have 10 years of continuity of clean energy tax credits and energy efficiency across the economy will provide that certainty that our innovators need. So you put out this report in 2020 or not 2020. When did the, when did the big report come out? It was just was that earlier this year? It was 2020, David. And, it's um, all a blur. It was. I know. It, it does get blurred. <laughs> and in, in fact, uh, we were we were set to release it in March of 2020. And I remember very well talking to Speaker Pelosi and Leader Hoyer on the floor. And we said, OK, well, we'll be we won't be announcing it next week because of uh the COVID. It, but we'll be back in a month <laughs> to, <laughs> to do this. And it, it took a little longer, but it gave us time because the country was grappling with the murder of George Floyd. And we knew that unlike uh, waxman Markey uh, kind of technical solution to the climate crisis, that people across America were hungry for solutions that are much more cross-cutting and focused on equity and addressing the communities that have disproportionately carried the burden of pollution. So that was that gave us time to kind of uh, build up our environmental justice pieces of mm-hmm. it. And the other thing that gave us momentum was the youth climate movement at that time. Mm-hmm. And, and thank goodness we have environmental advocates across America who, who know how to organize. And they organized and we heard them. Our very first hearing was with youth climate leaders so that they understood that we were truly listening to their, their pleas for action. And um, it's important to have those protests. They were protesting in, in the Congress and they need to continue to, mm-hmm. to press policymakers, but we listened and really turned their passion into policy. So this report comes out in 2020. It's a magisterial report, I would say. It's extremely, <laughs> I wrote it up when it came out. I just thought it was extremely um, fleshed out in the report, it had there were 715 policy recommendations. And your recent sort of wrap-up report that just came out says, out of those, 436 passed the House, and then 314 of them were signed into law. So I did the math. That's a 44% hit rate. You got to be feeling pretty good about that. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't know what typical expert committees in Congress produce, but that seems like a remarkably high success rate for getting recommendations into policy. Were you surprised how much from that initial report sort of survived 
the sausage making process and sort of came out the other end more or less unmolested. Yeah, we looked for every opportunity in every bill moving through the Congress to build in some of those policy recommendations into law. And for folks that want to look at that groundbreaking report at climatecrisis.house.gov, you'll see we, we had legislation in certain areas already drafted that was ready to go. And then mm-hmm. we made other recommendations for uh, the need for legislation. And to their credit, members across the Congress took us up on our offer. We work very closely with each congressional committee, almost just about every committee had a piece of this. Yeah, I wanted to ask about the, you know, because the committee didn't have the power to write legislation. It's just an advisory committee, which I think makes it kind of even more remarkable how much of its recommendations became law. But tell me a little bit about the process whereby this sort of, you know, recommendations that began in an advisory committee made their way to lawmaking committees. What was the sort of process whereby you kind of diffused your recommendations and tried to get them into things? What was it? It seemed to work uh, remarkably well behind the scenes. It didn't, I didn't, you know, I didn't read a lot of stories about sort of infighting or backbiting. So it seemed like a, a weirdly rational policy making process. Tell us a little bit about how these things made their way into policy. Well, Speaker Pelosi was very wise to appoint to the Climate Crisis Committee a number of members who are, are steeped in climate policy and politics. For example, Jared Huffman from California, who mm-hmm. was an uh, environmental lawyer, he knew, also sits on the Transportation Committee and has kept a very keen eye on those uh, policies Plus, uh, Sean Caston, a clean energy tech guy from the Midwest who understands power markets very well. Susanna Bonamici of Oregon, who is a leader in oceans policy, ocean solutions. And Donald McEachin, who recently passed away, was kind of our moral conscience and had crafted an environmental justice uh, for all act that we recommended. And a lot of the policies and equity sprung from that. So, for example, as Chairman Peter DeFazio and the Congress was crafting the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act that we also call the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, we had made recommendations for electrifying the transportation sector Mm -hmm. and doing it in a way that also built the bridge to uh, workers and labor. And though it looked (laughs) pretty easy, you know, looking back, I would say, great. But these were very difficult uh, discussions with uh, automakers, with uh, auto workers, with members of Congress like a Debbie Dingle. But you had Chairman DeFazio focused on uh, this very important infrastructure law, something that President Biden ran on. So in the end, all of those taking, listening and hammering out the compromises and policies in advance we end up with an infrastructure law that includes $62 billion for the Department of Energy over five years to support clean energy transition and infrastructure upgrades, including the $7.5 billion to build the very first nationwide EV charging network. So that had already been built into the Biden administration's goal of 500,000 public EV chargers and a future where all Americans can have easy access to EV charging. But it also has those important, you know, none of this happens unless we can build the batteries. So $3 billion for battery manufacturing, recycling grants, another $3 billion for battery materials processing. That was in the Infrastructure Act, right? I mean, this is one of the interesting things is that you, you know, you sort of seeded your recommendations in the infrastructure law and in CHIPS, and in the Inflation Reduction Act. And so it wasn't, you know, we didn't up in, end up in that kind of situation where there was just one big bill with everything this time. There was, you guys were working on everything that had a chance of passing, it seems like. That's correct. And with a patriotic flair, <laughs> you know, buy American, build American. I know right now it's, it's causing some consternation for a lot of our allies that also make cars and trucks, but that domestic content and the requirements for manufacturing 
uh, in the United States, we viewed as vitally important to building bipartisan support for decades to come. And already you've seen the announcements of where these battery plants, where the EV plants are going to be built, largely in the Midwest, largely in red states, in Republican areas. And I think over time, you know, the GOP is so wedded to oil and gas. But over time, as these workers and these communities have a piece of the clean energy future, it will be changing. It will build on itself and it will help us uh, address this climate emergency. Yeah, I want to come back to that, too. So I don't want to ask you to uh, choose a favorite child, (laughs) but out of all these, you know, out of this report full, just chock full of recommendations, are there any recommendations or set of recommendations that became law that you are particularly proud of that you are that you think are particularly sort of central to what we're doing like what's your if you had to choose kind of your favorite thing that you did that ended up actually passing the finish line what would you point to the electric grid across america and yeah. and it's not all the way done uh, because there are some very significant policy changes that must happen but what Folks like Hal Harvey and Mm -hmm. energy innovators told us right away is the most important way to tackle the climate crisis and to reduce greenhouse gases is in the power sector. Getting the lower cost solar, wind, energy efficiency resources out ASAP and then especially following on with the transportation sector. So here I sit in the state of Florida, the so-called sunshine state. Uh But they've kept us addicted to gas. They've put all the Mm -hmm. eggs pretty much in the gas basket. And that has really cost my neighbors a lot of money when we have price spikes, especially after Putin's unprovoked attack on on Ukraine. We can do so much better. We can lower costs. We can clean the air. We can build more resilient communities. You probably saw that after Hurricane Ian, the one community that didn't lose power and really didn't suffer as much damage was a solar powered community Babcock ranch in Southwest Florida. And I just, I want that for the, the entire country. And we're on the, the cusp of, of getting there, but that's why we have more work to do when it comes to getting the renewables out. But David, there's nothing like having those tax credits now Mm -hmm. for 10 years. Yeah. Hearing you put the grid at the center, uh, of course, warms my heart. You know, of the stuff that didn't make it, were there pieces that you um, that you were more disappointed didn't make it? I mean, is it, you know, this is sort of the flip side of the other question. Where is, is there stuff that you were hoping was going to make it that didn't, that you look back on with regret? I wish we could get a national renewable portfolio standard. <sighs> uh, again, using my experience here in the so-called sunshine state, Boy, we're a laggard. And again, we could bring that that lower cost clean energy to more of my neighbors here. And it's just so disjointed. You have states that have truly committed, local communities truly committed. They're going to reap the benefits and really the benefits should be available to everyone. So, you, you know, we started, we recommended a clean energy standard, energy efficiency standard. You need those goals to press ahead, even at as you have the standards, investments, and justice, I think you still, the goals are very helpful to set the bar. Well, that's the standards piece, which is hard to get through a reconciliation bill, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the nature of the beast. And remember, it morphed into making large uh, incentive payments to utilities to get there, but that didn't quite go. And uh, at that time, it looked like, you know, the climate policy was teetering. And thank goodness we had a president who never gave up and, and Senator Manchin came around to, to his credit and a lot of a lot of outside groups kept pushing. I don't think that's very evident when you watch the what's happening in, in Washington, D.C. You think it's so insular, but but I'm really I think everyone can be grateful for the wide uh, variety of of interests from the environmental justice groups, to the innovators, to the scientists who just kept out, kept pressing. 
This is probably an unanswerable question, and I don't want to get into trying to get you to psych- psychologize Joe Manchin. Thank God that those days are are past us for now. But do you think that pressure from outside groups reached him? You know, it's very hard to tell from the outside. He looks, you know, from the outside like he just doesn't care about most of those outside groups. Do you think that pressure had some role in in bringing him around? Yes, I do. I do, and I think he. I, you know, he has, he has children and grandchildren. I don't think he wanted to get up and look in the mirror and, and be responsible for a planet that is not as livable for our, our kids and future generations. Let's talk about a little bit of the mansion uh, changes. So he, he stripped out the renewable portfolio standard or the, I can't remember the name of what it had become, but the sort of reconciliation equivalent of the renewable portfolio. Standard. Yeah, the clean energy payment program or performance. Yeah, <laughs> RIP. So you know that would have been nice. But what do you, the the other main thing, as far as I can tell, that he changed was some changes to the EV tax credit. And I'm just uh, curious what you make of the changes to that credit. Were you sort of supportive of those? Do you think they went too far? Because I've heard some concern. You know that the that the requirements now. Uh, for domestic content are kind of so tight that no one's going to be able to meet them for a couple of years. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. It is going to be difficult. And when I say that we had a patriotic plan of action, that was because we really do want to win the future. We want the United States of America to be building those electric vehicles and have the, the leading technology. But the the minerals and the batteries are going, the domestic content requirements are going to be difficult. And I think everyone is pressing ahead to, to you know, there are good tax credits and significant dollars to mm. build up those domestic uh, manufacturing, the plants, the workforce. So everyone is kind of pressing along in that direction now. It's only been a few months. But yes, we're hearing from uh, our allies. Uh, I know when President Macron was was here recently that that he was bending the president's ear. And there may be some ways for the administration as they go through implementation to listen and and do some things on on timing. But I, I think mostly Americans are committed to to wanting to these to be a pathway to good paying jobs for our people of uh, the industrial base in America. We've got to invest through chips, through everything we've done with EVs. And uh, I think we still have more room on workforce to do, but okay. So difficult, but we've, we've got to, we've got to try. It's an important, it's important for competitiveness. So Manchin stripped out the, the clean payment program. He tweaked the EV tax credits a little bit, sort of tightening their domestic requirements, but it was striking that for all the sort of like suspense, like around Build Back Better, like, is it going to happen? Is it going to not? Mansion stripped out the care provisions and the, a lot of the healthcare stuff, all this drama. Through all that, the basic clean energy and climate portion of that bill was mostly left alone. <laughs> like, like what ended up passing in the Inflation Reduction Act is pretty close to what your expert committee members wrote down on paper. Did you expect Manchin to do more? Because, you know, for all that, you know, he's objecting and objecting and saying no. And I just thought, well, surely he's going to strip this down like he stripped everything else down. But he ended up sort of not doing all that much to it. Were you, what do you make of that? I make of it that it, it really was a an effort that knitted together interest and collaboration across the economy that was bigger than than the Congress. They just, people knew if we didn't act now, uh, we were condemning uh, our kids to a, a bleaker future and that now was the time to lay the foundation to slash pollution across the board. We decided it ended up through tax credits. Tax credits will drive investment in affordable clean energy the electric vehicles, cost-saving energy efficiency technologies, but also through making environmental justice a cornerstone of climate action, a stronger uh, enforcement of environmental laws. Monies uh, will flow into that, increasing 
the investments to communities on the front lines, rural communities, tribal communities, energy, you know, a lot of the communities that grew up through coal mining uh, and frack gas, they're going to need to see themselves in the clean energy future as well. Bonuses for those high road labor standards, domestic manufacturing, also the cross-cutting approach to reducing methane pollution. I think there was broad bipartisan realization that control of methane is vitally important ASAP mm-hmm. to give us a fighting chance to meet our climate goals. So you think he left it alone because it was good policy? I mean, I would, <laughs> I guess I would, I, I love that story and I hope it's true. <laughs> so, you know, you say several times in this recent report, there's a lot left to do, you know, 44% of your recommendations passed, which is remarkable, but that leaves a bunch more that didn't pass. Do you have any hope at all of decent energy legislation passing through this coming Congress with Republicans in control of the House? Or is it more or less up to Biden over the next two years to act via executive action? Democrats are going to be quite focused on finding bipartisan uh, solutions moving forward, even with the the chaotic Congress, the House (laughs) of Representatives that is sure to come, because there are some folks on that side that just are there. They, they live to shut down the government for some reason. I don't know. They're just not constructive. (laughs) Uh, But I, they'll be, hopefully they don't uh, cause complete chaos. So most of the action, yes, will be in implementation. We have got to get money back into people's pockets through the more energy efficient appliances and through weatherizing their homes and, building the solar plants. My, my local mayor here in, in Tampa looked at the tax credits that they will receive and said, well, I'm, I'm going to put solar panels on top of this brand new big community center, and that's going to save us a million dollars. Multiply that all across the country, but it's, it's going to be important to get those monies out into people's pockets. And thankfully, we've got allies that are going to be working with us on that. I'm just curious if there are um, particular things that you would like to see Biden do via executive action over the next two years. Any sort of top priorities left over from the report that you would like him to sort of prioritize? The Department of Energy now has more resources at its disposal than than ever before. Uh, That Green Climate Bank, I think it's going to be fascinating uh, to see the innovations that come from across the country. It's kind of like community development block grants that go to local communities where they have the most flexibility to determine what meets their own community needs. And I see that uh, Green Climate Bank as a way to speed up some of these climate solutions. But back to where there could be bipartisan uh, work that I would hope everyone, again, can continue pressing policymakers to move on. We'll have a farm bill up and ranchers, producers, farmers, they are hungry for climate smart ag policy. Is that true? Because now, you know, like traditionally there's been some hostility from the agricultural sector toward climate stuff. There's not been traditionally historically allies. Do you really think opinion within that community has swung around to the necessity of this stuff or is it still kind of a trench warfare over there in that sector? We have work to do, but I'll tell you, I met with a very conservative group here in Florida, the citrus growers, the dairy farmers, the all of our nurseries, the specialty crops, and they are ready to be part of the solution. There, there is so much that they learn through our ag extension offices, and we have now made these climate smart ag hubs where farmers now can do more for soil health, for conservation. They, they should get some compensation if they are going to be part of the solution and sequester carbon and be smarter and more efficient. The whole entire food system, I would highlight, is an area where we can do so much better as well. Then the, mm. the defense bills now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the past two defense bills have been the most climate-forward For example, we're going to pass this omnibus appropriations bill and well over half 
of the the trillion dollars. I think upwards of 900 billion goes to the Department of Defense. So they can be an important customer, a research uh, instigator, uh, deployment across their military bases, but developing those clean technologies in in everything that they do. So that will have to continue. And that's why I'm so happy the, the smart people at the Biden administration are, are there for two years so that we can implement and get these technologies and policies on track. Well, if we're talking about, you know, executive branch action, you kind of got to think about the Supreme Court. I'm, I'm, I wonder how worried you are about the Supreme Court. Like how... <laughs> How much of this do you think they could screw up? How how safe do you think this entire effort is from the Supreme Court? What's kind of, what's kind of your level of worry there? Well, the, the good news was the last term, they didn't completely gut EPA's authority to regulate climate pollution. So that was an important, important takeaway. And EPA <laughs> needs to continue on in all of their important enforcement activities and ways to cut climate pollution from the regulatory side. You, you may remember, since you read our 2020 Climate Crisis Action Plan all the way to the end, <laughs> that we highlighted other policies that are important to tackling the climate crisis involving strengthening democracy. The January 6th committee now has issued their final report. We have got to strengthen the laws relating to big money in elections, transparency. There have been scandals across America in in various states where electric utilities now are playing in elections. We need, you know, there's no reason that any ratepayer money or some fungible money should be going into blocking the deployment of lower cost clean energy. Uh, So strengthening our democratic institutions, we highlighted as uh, important climate solutions as well, and they remain so. It does not seem like the Supreme Court is uh, on your side on that particular issue. This is (laughs) a little bit of a, a depressing question, but, you know, it's all about implementation these next two years. And the House, the nature of the House seems pretty binary, whether you have the majority or not. Is there anything you can do from the minority in the House to really make sure this is implemented well? I mean, what what can you do from the minority in the House? Or is this just a time to retrench and, you know, dry your powder for the next fight? Or what can you do from the minority? Yeah, David, you know, the the policies, the grants, and the opportunities that flow out of the bipartisan infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act and CHIPS and everything else are so vast that an average member of Congress could spend every waking minute on making sure that your local community understands and is maximizing uh, what will flow out of that law. So before I went to Congress, I served as a county commissioner and I'm busy already talking to my local partners and nonprofits, you know, my environmental justice folks, but just plain uh, city, county governments and others to make sure that they understand what is available. At the same time, we've got to keep an eye on the entrepreneurs and the scientific discoveries. And again, I'll highlight the vast new resources at the Department of Energy in Congress, on the Energy and Commerce Committee, we know that the Republican majority is going to shine a spotlight on the Department of Energy. I anticipate Secretary Grandholm will be a frequent visitor <laughs> for our committee. And, uh, you know, oh, there's nothing wrong with oversight. But if you're going to throw a wrench into lower cost, clean energy solutions simply to benefit the legacy oil, gas, fossil fuel industry, that's that's just playing politics and that we need to stay focused on, on the people and people over politics and uh, there will be plenty to do. So big picture wise, if you step back and you look at, say, the coming 10 years, what do you see as kind of the biggest, you know, if you sort of between us and decarbonization, most of which is supposed to happen in the next 10 years. What do you sort of lose sleep over? What is What do you see as the biggest 
challenge? Uh, is it education? Is it transmission? Is it going to be politics? Like, what are the sort of big looming challenges you see that you worry most about as we try to pull off something which is, you know, huge and <laughs> has never been pulled off before? Yeah, again, I come to you with a sunshine state perspective where we should be a leader in, in clean energy and where we lag behind. So I see enormous opportunities to lower electric bills and, you know, we're suffering through a property insurance crisis and flood insurance uh, is not widely, people don't just don't take it. Maybe they will now a little more, these more intense hurricanes. But I see a political system that is not responding as it should for the people to hmm. to ex- have a plan to expedite the clean energy technologies, the weather, just plain weatherization, uh, to use every tool at our disposal to help move to the clean energy economy through good paying jobs with an element of justice. I fortunately we now have a plan like that on the national level, but I my, I worry it'll be too disjointed and there. And politics will come into play and the people who need it most will be denied the opportunity to have the, uh, you know, lower cost clean energy or the appliances or the the readily available EVs over the in 10 years that that they should have. Speaking of red state politics, <laughs> I'm curious, looking back, how much help would you say you got in all of this from the minority members of the committee? You know, how on board were they versus, you know, trying to throw wrenches in the works? What's your sort of take on where the Republicans on your committee are on all this stuff, especially after three years of, you know, work? Well, you know, they, they, they don't outright deny climate change any longer. Um, <laughs> so they bring arguments on on cost that you know some things are unworkable so i guess one thing it does is it it has us sharpen our pencils and make sure that that what we are proposing is workable there are some bipartisan solutions out there on on natural solutions and resiliency and adaptation we've gotten we've had good discussions on that and mm-hmm. crafted some legislation on that, but still on the clean energy side, they're they're not totally there. But but again, I, I am hopeful because now businesses, small and large, innovators, universities, red states and blue states, rural areas and not, will uh, over time understand and have access to the jobs, the careers, the opportunities that I think will push them. The the problem is we're running out of time. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. So, you know, one aspect of of all the legislation that passed this last term, which I feel like doesn't really get enough uh, press, I'm not sure if the public at large really understands it very well, is not just focused on, you know, reducing emissions and climate stuff. It is a big industrial policy package. You know, there's a ton of money to bring manufacturing and factories and mines and processing facilities and and battery manufacturing and battery recycling, you know, tons and tons of money to onshore those industries. And I swear, since the Inflation Reduction Act passed, I've probably seen like a half dozen at least announcements of new, you know, new plans for big manufacturing facilities. I just saw one planned for West Virginia yesterday. I forget what it is, if it's a, a... maybe battery manufacturing or recycling, one of those. So one of the things that's going to happen, you know, it's happening already, but it's going to continue happening in the next few years, is a flood of jobs to red states. And I just wonder, is that going to change their position on this? Is that going to change their orientation on this stuff? Just at a grassroots level, is the sh- is incoming jobs going to shake people out of the partisanship on this? And if so, when? (laughs) I I realize there's no way to answer that question, but, you know, it seems like 
this ought to be sort of like an acid eating away at that opposition, right? The more mm-hmm. jobs you have, the less opposition. Do you see that dynamic taking root yet? Or how long do you think that would take for that to sort of put down roots? Yeah, there there is nothing like your homegrown, hometown uh, industry and workers, your neighbors uh, tell you, these are good paying jobs. We see a future for our children to stay in this community and live here. Uh, there's nothing like that in moving a, a policymaker. And that's why we understood it was important to focus on energy communities, a, a rural electric co-op here in Florida. They highlighted to me how important that was going to be to change over from old coal and gas mm-hmm. into uh, solar and other other clean technologies. Oftentimes, those plants are the largest property taxpayer in those communities. They're the largest employers. So yes, over time that has to happen. But as I stated, we're, we're running out of time. And so we're, we're all in this together, but community engagement, that's why we thought it was also important to focus on building capacity among those energy intensive communities and the, the communities that have a lot of the polluting plants Mm -hmm. and, You'll see as the, the Biden administration rolls out grants and initiatives, they're going to stay true, I trust, to that push for environmental justice. And I know a lot of people poo-poo the, the, the term, but it simply is, is based on fairness. And uh, we've got to follow through with, with our promise uh, to make sure we're lifting up everyone, that everyone ha- benefits from this transition to clean energy. Otherwise, it will it will take longer and it will be harder. Well, I've kept you a while, but to wrap up, I thought it was quite notable that in the 2022 midterms, you know, as contentious as they were, you did not see Republicans organizing around opposition to, you know, it's going to say the Inflation Reduction Act, but really the Infrastructure Act, CHIPS, all these, you know, all the sort of big marquee legislative achievements, many of which crucially involved climate stuff. And the the Inflation Reduction Act basically was a giant climate bill. They didn't run against those, which, which, uh, you know, is a, is a striking contrast again to, um, you know, back in, in 2010 when opposition to the Waxman Markey bill, the, the quote unquote carbon tax, you know, was a was a was a headline feature of almost every Republican campaign. They didn't campaign against this climate bill. So, what do we make of that? Why did that Why did that happen? What What is what What can we learn from that? You're right. They didn't shoot the Inflation Reduction Act with a shotgun. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no one shot it. <laughs> no, because of climate impacts are all too real all across the country. No one's immune, whether you're suffering major water shortages in the West, Colorado River drying up or huge wildfires, extreme heat, hurricanes that intensify faster. Everyone is there. There's been an awakening to the impacts of climate and they cost so much. Mm. You know, the other the, the folks aligned with fossil fuels, they've gotten away for years with saying, oh, we can't do clean energy because it's so expensive. Well, for one, clean energy is cheaper energy. But the cost of climate, the years of inaction or smaller steps were really costing us. And I think people understand there are solutions out there. We just have to unleash the scientific know-how that we have here and convert a lot of those good ideas into actual solutions. We've got a lot of smart people and a lot of dedicated people who are ready to do this, and we're on the cusp of making it happen. I think having these huge gas price spikes and people watch their neighbor with an EV doesn't even have to stop at the (laughs) gas station and drives right by it. It kind of uh, made people think twice. I know that that F-150 electric truck as it rolls off that's the number one selling vehicle in america and they to think that you'll be able to coming from the florida perspective again 
we have a hurricane and they knock out your electricity and you can plug in your air conditioner, um, your home into that truck and power it for a while. So the people now are, they're, they're waking up to, okay, climate is, if we don't address it now, we're condemning our kids to a, a bleaker future. And right now it's costing us a lot and we've, we've got to get a hold of our wallets too. So you really think that climate denialism and the sort of anti-clean energy has lost its political potency on the right? Are we? Are you willing to lay down that marker? I wouldn't say entirely. No, there <laughs> there are still members of Congress that you know they don't they don't lead with it right, <laughs> anymore. Right, they don't right. lead with it, but it it's there, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> but we're. I think we're poised to deliver again, and and uh, but that that's what it depends on you. This implementation, and and it's up to everyone. I hope everyone who listens to your podcast understands they also have a responsibility, and I, I trust they they take that seriously to be guided by the science and rooted in justice and powered by American workers to provide those solutions to our neighbors. Well, I do think um, facts on the ground, as they say generally do more to change people's minds than than arguments and reports and white papers and uh and and ipcc meetings so uh we'll get to see that tested in these next few years thank you so much for coming on uh i encourage everybody to read this this report you guys put out it's just it's a really um, interesting sort of summary of what made it from your report into law and what remains to be done for Congress, it's very, you know, if you're, again, it's always policy nerds. <laughs> policy nerds will love this. It's it's very uh, in-depth of what has and hasn't been done. And, uh, you know, just thank you again for your, your work over these past three years. I feel like um, it's not often, especially in the <laughs> current American system of government, that you really get a chance to be at the center of something and, and, and help change things in a concrete way. And I feel like uh, your committee has done that in a way that a lot of expert committees and <laughs> meetings don't. So congratulations on that. And, and thanks for all your work. Well, th thank you, David. And again, we had a fantastic team, some committed members. We had the most effective speaker of the house in the history of America and, and Nancy <laughs> Pelosi and the, the climate committee was her vision. And she's always focused on making sure we're keeping an eye on our kids and future generations. But thanks to everyone. Uh, I bet a lot of your listeners weighed in with the Climate Committee along the way and helped us craft these solutions. And, and thanks to you for your, your attention to our work. Thank you for listening to the Volts Podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.